The main part of this concert is a piece I wrote from uh, 2015, which is called Harry Patch. Harry Patch was a real person. He was the last uh, last surviving British soldier who fought in the trenches in World War One. Led a pretty normal life once the war finished and wasn't notable in any way because, of course, so many other people also fought in the trenches until everybody else died uh, of old age and various other causes. And suddenly he was the, you know, the, one of the oldest men in Britain and the last one left who had uh, been in World War One. The kind of... I guess pointlessness of of that achievement uh, drew me to it um, because I thought it was a symbol of uh, the kind of futility of that war and the implications for humanity that you know a war like that was fought. When when it came to do that again, to put the piece on again a few years later, um, it was tied in with this series in in Farmley and. Um, we wanted to try and connect my piece to Irishness because we were very conscious of the the place it was going to happen. Um, so basically, I asked Rob Coleman, who's uh, artistic advisor for Kirkos and like a close collaborator going back many years with Kirkos and other things. Um, I asked him what he thought of that and did he have any ideas. So he came up with this idea for an installation uh, using words by Thomas Ashe the Irish rebel. The piece was written originally to be played in complete darkness as as the last part of a, a pretty big series, the, kind of the first really um, major sort of thing Kirkos did in terms of production and a- ambition. The piece was, was massive. It was like eight movements, what sort of modelled quite closely on the quartet for the end of time. Um, so it was a long piece with a lot of different parts and basically... I wasn't really happy with some bits of it, so especially the second and third movement. Uh, it just the overall pacing was was too slow. I think at the start it gets it gets really slow in a good way in the second half, but I felt like what was happening was by the time you get to the fourth movement, people maybe are getting a bit restless. So what I've done is cut out like nine tenths of the second movement and about half of the third movement. You mentioned that it was uh, modelled closely on, um, well, not closely, but modelled on Messiaen's quartet for the for the end of time, which originally when it was when it was premiered, it was part of this big, big um, project that that Kirkos did, as you were mentioning. Um, what's, is it a challenge to write something that's based on such an iconic work? And, you know, maybe maybe was that the reason why you felt that you needed to come back and revise it uh, two years or three years later? Yeah, it certainly is a challenge. Uh, in some ways, having the Messi in there was really useful because it was a, a, a strong backbone because actually what I did was structurally I modelled the kind of overall layout of the piece quite closely on it and in some cases even the actual maybe just one movement actually the actual structural uh, kind of makeup of of the equivalent movement in in the quartet for the end of time so it was sort of very deliberately um modeled on on the piece so in that sense it was easy in a way because it's always uh the, the hardest thing in writing a piece is finding the kind of foundation you're going to hang the work on. And then for, for me, anyway, I've always found the other stuff is kind of easy to slot in on top of that. And um, so it provided that. But then, of course, you you know, if you're doing something like that, you're quoting something or modeling something on, on, on a piece that people in the audience are going to know that 
you're instantly going to get them thinking about that piece and comparing it. One of the interesting things um, about coming back to this piece is is that that was at the end of a phase where I was uh, quoting pieces a lot uh, and, you know, mimicking things, uh, copying things, trying to find my own way to do the same thing, I guess, that other pieces I liked did. And at the moment, I don't do that at all. Uh, it's probably probably is like four years since I quoted a piece. I'm not sure if that's actually true, but it's been a while anyway, you know, so I've changed a lot since this piece was written. Coming back to this piece four years later and mentioning that you, you have sort of moved on uh, in terms of your composition and approach. Uh, how, how difficult is it for you as a, as, a, as a composer to come back and revisit something in, in, in a, at a point in time? Um, that's an interesting question. I'm not actually sure yet because um, this is the first time uh, I've had an experience like this. I don't think I will want to rewrite it the way I would write it now because uh, I just wouldn't write this now, you know? It's like, um, it's almost a, it's like looking at a piece by a different person almost, like a slightly different version of me, I guess. Um, so I think probably I, I felt I felt good about cutting the piece because I knew that me at the time actually thought that was a good idea. Talk to me a little bit more about this 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 change that you you've made in terms of you know open scoring and I- improvising because this the, I mean this piece um, Harry Patch is is very much a scored piece yeah uh, uh, there there are no improvised or free uh, sections in it yeah um, have you have you completely left scored music behind no 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 so, so um, where's the balance. Well, I, I'm kind of working that out for myself at the moment. So um, if you if you were to look at like the pieces I've written in the last 12 months, uh, probably the first one was uh, a piece for the ICO where I, um, I started, I realized that I couldn't get the things I wanted with, uh, with fully notated music. So I had to find other ways. And I ended up basically going halfway between so so there are passages of 100% scored music which kind of alternate with passages of um basically like text pieces um so almost like little tiny uh, event scores or fluxus pieces in it um so not even graphic notation but just actually text instructions um and the most recent piece i wrote was a string quartet where i tried to take just that idea and see if i could write the entire piece like that so i really I wrote like about eight bars of scored music which is the very last section of the piece and then everything else is a set of instructions for a a pretty complicated structure and material and stuff like that Um, and the players put it together by just trying to figure out what I mean by all all that I don't think I very much doubt I will abandon uh, notated music but I'm just exploring other things quite a lot now much more in, in the last year I've done much more of that than I have of actually writing notes. Interesting. And is the, is the approach to to write, uh, you know, composing in that way where you're coming up with instructions and um, working with text, is, is, is that a very, very different approach compositionally to writing a scored piece? Or are there, are there many common things between the, the two? It would probably depend a lot on the actual the specific context but for for me what I find in the pieces I've been doing is that it allows me to 
skip maybe a stage of the process which for a lot of what I do I felt was getting more and more uh, superfluous anyway uh, which is the stage where I go from having had the idea a fully formed idea to having to figure out how to put that in notation in a specific way that is uh, always going to be the way that that gets played and so um you spend a lot more time at the idea stage and at the structure stage and maybe you know I kind of think of it as a, a kind of uh, Rob Coleman would like this because he does this sort of thing in loads of his pieces but it's like a macro to micro thing with composition where you start off with maybe a blank page with ABA on it or whatever and then you gradually get down through layers of of abstraction and uh, basically taking a microscope onto it and you end up with like bar 67 the flute uh, which note are they going to play in the middle of the second beat or whatever uh, and what articulation is that going to have and so I don't enjoy that that much and I also as someone who likes I love playing pieces where uh, that stuff isn't decided for me whether that's free improvisation or whether it's playing music that other people have written just coming back to um, to Kirkos and sure. and and the ensemble that you set up um, some years ago. Maybe describe to me what the the main purpose of, of, of Kirkos is and why exactly you set it up. When Kirkos started, we really had uh, one purpose, which was very simple to state, which was basically uh, um, me and the other composers in the academy at the time were just like, oh, we're, n- we're not getting our music played that much. Why don't we just figure out a way to make that happen and uh, the academy were like right behind it they thought it was great and so um, we just really started to play in order to play pieces by people studying in the academy teachers in the academy people who had recently studied in the academy and at the time that was um, there was actually a really good bunch of composers in and around like between people actually studying composition and people studying performance and the teachers etc so we were able to put on really good concerts just of that stuff. And then basically uh, I got the bug of uh, putting concerts on, curating things. Um, uh, Rob was amazingly helpful in the opening. The, the At the start, basically, Rob was um, just doing loads of work and getting no credit. So um, we became co-directors then for a long time after, after the first few months. Um, and we planned basically tons of stuff together. And and basically what happened was it morphed from being a, a sort of composer's ensemble to being actually a thing with its own, um, its own creative kind of outlook and aesthetic. And really what we did the whole time was just um, find things we wanted to do and then make them happen. Has the situation in 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 dublin when it comes to contemporary music making is it is it has it improved or or are there more challenges there you know now in 2019 compared to when you were first you know getting getting established with your projects it certainly seems more challenging now uh, than it would have been say four years ago there's not much optimism at the moment, I think. And when I talk to people who are in similar position to myself, people who are producing work, uh, I think a lot of people are very worried about the state of of Dublin and 
the kind of uh, the framework that we're all working in and the infrastructure. Um, to be perfectly honest, I was like about to emigrate only about two months ago because uh, I had to I had to leave the place I was living. Uh, I so I'm living with my parents at the moment. Um, I I'm not sure if I can afford to rent in Dublin. But on top of that, I mean that's pretty bad already uh, as a scenario. But uh, I had nowhere to work. There's nowhere where it's easy to put on gigs, uh, etc. You know, it goes on. Uh, the f- funding situation is is difficult, uh, and so you put all those things together and you have like a recipe for brain drain, I guess. I'm now feeling personally much better because uh, I was lucky enough, well, Kirkos were lucky enough to get um, the incubation scheme from Dublin City Council, which means we have a studio in town until Christmas, which uh, is like a really big room that we can put gigs on and that we can hold rehearsals in. You need a fair bit of money in Dublin to put on a gig because there aren't venues where you're just invited to come in and do something informal it's it's extremely difficult to find the chance to do that you know to put on a low-key gig so what happens is people maybe can only do stuff if it's if it's funded uh, which obviously means there's a massive amount of work needed to get the funding there's the pressure to actually put huge time into marketing it uh, because then you you know you need numbers in the audience all of this stuff means people are less likely to put work on there's less work happening for people to go to there's less for people to be involved in you know people can hardly afford to live here as is you know you're seeing articles about that all, all the time at the moment um so it's kind of worrying time what would you try and change from your experience of, of being on the ground i think the single thing that would make the biggest difference uh i mean i'm speaking kind of low ambition here um but a venue maybe sort of along the lines of cafe auto in in london or you know basically somewhere where people can get hold of it cheaply um which is a f- like a flexible place where people can put on gigs or or work or whatever uh you know even a few venues like that would make a massive difference um because then it would be just so much easier to uh to make rehearsals happen and to make gigs happen because uh that's another huge thing that i actually didn't mention earlier is you know if you're having a you're having an event uh you need to hire rehearsal space um unless you're lucky like kirkos and have a good relationship with the with somewhere like the academy which i think has always been a thing that actually set kirkos apart from uh, other people around our age was that we had really easy access to rehearsal space at all times because um because deborah kelleher and the academy were so supportive of us um we're suddenly seeing how difficult that is because they're starting their redevelopment but um yeah so just space i think would be a massive 